0: This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shi'urim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapyansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com.
1: Thank you for listening to Torah Media Atlanta. Won't you consider making a donation to help support this important work? Just go to torahmediaatlanta.com and click on the Donate link. Thank you very much
0: is unique and we're trying to understand what that world was what it was about and i think that that will help us at least appreciate the life and what he was about and so on he was he grew up in an orthodox family in midwest in chicago orthodox fully observant not what we would consider part of the total world in the sense that learning Torah was an activity of the day, an important activity, but limited, life-centered around many other activities, and there was time set aside for Torah study. The curriculum in the school was your typical American school, very balanced American yeshiva high school, Um, a, a reasonable amount of Hebrew studies, a reasonable amount of secular studies, sports, lunch, and, you know, it was, it was kind of, that was the, the lifestyle that he grew up in. And he was a good boy. He didn't, ex- he, he, he excelled at nothing except being very fine, good, nice, um, serious, pleasant. He was head of the, head of the student council, captain of the basketball team, and an all-round good person trying to do right things. And then something happened to him when he was 15. His parents decided to take him on a trip to Israel. Now, if you've made a trip to Israel, it's all pleasure to sit in the economy for 12 hours, but in, 19, uh, in, in 1960 or so, it was, it, was, it was like sitting in the baggage compartment of that, of that economy class. It wasn't like sitting, but his parents decided to take the trip because he had, his father had an uncle who was in your slide, wanted a great person, someone who had the biggest and strongest yeshiva in Europe. And by all counts, no no disagreement, this was the mirror. The mirror was where you came to when you finished studying in yeshivas that needed to develop you. And now you could sit sort of in an academic academic atmosphere where everyone is studying on their own and locking horns and delivering seminars and kind of uh, interacting intellectually with the best and the brightest. That was the mirror. And he built it single-handedly. And he had the skill to pick the best, the brightest, and to create that environment of intense Torah study. That yeshiva was really what the word yeshiva was called in Europe. A place where people focus and study full-time and look at everything else as kind of being peripheral. It was a place where you could put in 16, 18, 20 hours, and really, really work hard. And people mastered a big part of the Talmud at a very high level. And it was seen as being the most religious, intensely religious activity that a person could engage in. And these people became the teachers and they had fire. It's different when a teacher teaches because, you know, what do you do for a living? I still use cars. What do you do? I teach kids. When it's kind of the same thing. Or you have a passion for learning and it overflows to others. It created a passion for learning, what's called Torah To learn because understanding is the most important thing. And let's understand why that is. We speak about God as being just, and God demanding justice from us. But what is just? When I'm fighting with somebody, I, I, I you know, in, in being a rabbinic position, I very rarely meet two people fighting, where one says, I'm a Russia, I'm really a bad person, I'm trying to get what I don't deserve. I, I've only met two tzaddikim fighting, the only tzaddikim fight. everyone is 100% convinced he's right. Because we don't have any specific sense of, well, what is right? Um, I, God wants justice, fine, I'm inspired. What is justice? And a lot of the Talmud is spent on, on, on working out that issue. And as a person pounds away at it, he begins to get a very clear sense of right and wrong. The activity of study is probably the least physical activity that we can engage in. It, it's the mind. You need to sort of leave the body behind if you're fretting, if you're fidgeting, if your stomach is hungry, it's hard to to focus. When you focus, you leave it behind and it becomes a very spiritual experience. It also, as opposed to a kind of meditation or even prayer, it doesn't lend itself to kind of vague feelings. If you've ever entered a study hall that's dynamic, and you see people pounding, and fighting, and arguing, there's something very solid, and very real, a reality check, and very concrete. And the mere yeshiva was the yeshiva of Europe. If you made it to the mirror, you were the cream of the crop. The intensity, the simplicity of life, the the fire of the study. In Europe, people got married late, so you had a yeshiva of people well, well close to the 30s, which was really the best. It was the story of the war, not as Yeshiva, the Yeshiva as a whole went to Shanghai, amazing story, not for this time and place, really A really story that's one of the miracles of our generation, of how Torah survived. Most ended up in America, um, taking up positions of teaching and bringing Torah to America. In Israel, where the Rosh Hashiva was, he had nothing, and he slowly began at the age of 60, 70, to rebuild again and he was slowly beginning to rebuild the yeshiva and they wanted brother-in-law, to see that man before he passed away and to get a sense of it no problem, they went for a trip he saw in him as great people have visions that are deeper than our visions he looked at this young American boy apple pie American playing baseball and what not and he said, there's something great. He told his parents, leave him here. Something big will come of him. He was 15, and the parents, as politely as they could, said, no way. And he was there for a few weeks, months, I don't remember exactly. And something lit up in him. Even though it was a small yeshiva at the time, to see the intensity, the feeling the, the, the simplicity of life, not that people sacrificed, people didn't care much because what was really important and significant was the learning. And something caught in him. He went back to finish high school. And that time, he insisted on going back and went back. His um, grandfather took him as a personal project and he was like an old man who was in his 80s he slept with him in his I would say apartment but the room is a much better description it's still around it's a room and a closet and two memories and I think two memories are important to put one next to the other to understand the inspiration that Reb Lazy gave and what it was about he came in back after a long hard trip from a so, your stuff, yeah, this is your bed. So he, he lays down to go to sleep. He says, no, tell me something, a question, an idea that you thought of in your Torah sites. He was dead tired, a dozen, a dozen time zones behind, and young, and he said, no, no he doesn't no. He says, no, you don't go to sleep until you, don't, you haven't presented some idea. You racked his brains and nothing presented itself. He walked upstairs to the base Medrash, sat a while, and the question started, started, some of the questions on his head, and he told him, okay, good night. He woke up, it was like four in the morning, my brother woke up, kind of, something strange, and he saw his uncle, very quietly, he dressed, he got up every day for the morning, walked over to the shas put his hands around it, hugged it, kissed it, and then made the blessings on Torah. The combination of that, the intensity, the love for learning, his grandfather, was, his uncle was tiptoeing around so that he shouldn't wake him up, he didn't suspect he would ever see it. And, he, you know, the idea was, the core of a person is one thing, to understand and to know. That's where your love is and and, and and you don't go to sleep empty. You go to sleep with an idea, with a thought. That was how he presented it. My brother in law didn't stand out as the brightest Yeshiva, but he stood out as the most focused, persevering. And it was amazing, I came much later, obviously, on, on, I, I came in 1970, he came in the 50s, in the, in the 60s. And, um, he was, um, he was, in some people when they're intensity burnout, it's like you ever see a, a young child when he tries to run a marathon and he starts with a sprint, and then places, and, you know, it's not, it's not smart. He was calm, level, and focused on and on and on. And that was one element that made him extraordinarily okay, great. He, he, he had an intensity, but a calm and focused intensity. And he never hesitated to say, I don't understand, let's do it again. Let's do it again, let's do it again. At night, in the morning, in the day, in the afternoon. He had a lot of catching up to do. And he didn't have a natural ability to, like this. But it was like a machine. calm and always happy with it, there always was a smile, it was always pleasant, you looked at him and said, he is enjoying himself. This went on for a few years, and then um, he still wasn't considered the top, but um, his uncle decided, you know what, this man is a great person. And I would like to have him as a son-in-law for my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter. At that time, she, and, and uh, his son, who later became a Shashiva, his oldest daughter, which is my oldest sister-in-law, they they went out and they became engaged and got married. And it stayed the same with the same amount of perseverance. One thing changed over the years, I wouldn't say changed but got added he also began reaching out and teaching at other people preferably the weakest and the ones that needed him the most it was almost kind of contrary, people who were sort of gunning for a great career in rabbinics and teaching were usually looking for sharpest minds to lock horns with so that you can develop yourself and sort of he did learn with big people. His grandfather saw to it. His uncle, con- his uncle, same day. By marriage, his grandfather, by, by birth was his uncle. Um, he said, um, he, he's, he provided with it. But he would always look for the person that walked into the yeshiva behind. Something like himself, I think. And work with him, help him, help him encourage food, help him study help him understand, and needed, a, you know, just a, a kind word, a smile, a meal, the meals were really, really um, left room for for, for help, and that was the other activity. His wife, Khaim, Chaim, she was an extraordinary woman, she wanted, that's what she wanted of him, and she made every effort that he would be undisturbed by anything to be able to focus and study. I remember, in like, in this is 1970, I had already children who must have been six, maybe, I don't remember exactly, but they were the kind of young kids. She said, you need to study, but your kids need to have interaction with their father. So I will bring the kids to the yeshiva, and you'll spend time with them over there. And she would bring the kids there, and he would spend time so they didn't have to go back and forth. This was her ideal, and it was his ideal. As time went on, this, it just kept going. The things that stood out, one other thing I think that stood out, was what seemed to have been an infinite amount of patience. I don't think I ever saw him without the smile, without the calm, without that same calm, thoughtful demeanor. And even if you annoyed him greatly, basically all you could coax was a smile out of him, and sort of, uh, and that, was the, and that was the end of the day, to, to it. You just disregard the rest of it. Was, it that, those are the things that stood out as, as a person outside looking in. My father-in-law became Rosh Hashiva. He was the son of Reblayzi and, Udal. Uh, and he became Rosh Hashiva in 1965 when his father passed away. In 1990, my father passed away. He was sick for a few months before he passed away, and he was looking to see who he felt he could lead the yeshiva to. The yeshiva had grown from about a hundred some odd students that the grandfather left over to a thousand. It was a large yeshiva, big building. Thousand students is a very big yeshiva in those days for sure. And he looked around and said of oh, of all the members that studied Yeshiva, family members, etc., who is the person he can leave the burden of fundraising, teaching, administrating? Rosh Hashiva means everything. And he said, "Well, Reb Svi is the obvious candidate." But there was one no problem: he had Parkinson's. It had started four years before, five years before. For a few years, nobody knew because he had the power, he was physically very strong, and never let on, and was a person that didn't like to depend on other people. But we knew then, his father certainly knew, that he was in the beginning of, of Parkinson's, and it was beginning to show, and to take a person who's beginning to have that effect, the, the, the effects, the field effects, him, and dump a yeshiva, he'd never touched, I'd never done a stitch of fundraising, never been involved in administration, had only been studying and teaching. That had been the only thing. And he thought and thought and thought, and he said, but there is no one else. He's the person. And he became Rosh Hashiva. He spent 21 years, and as his disease became progressively more difficult, he increased his burden. I can't begin to picture to you what his they look like. He... He delivered major lectures, which means to entire student body, he a few times a week, private classes a few times a day. His budget went from a million or two million dollars a year to thirty million dollars a year. He built from one building, he built a whole bunch of campuses and buildings and all over the place. Um, somebody once some, some cynic once told him why don't you just roof in half of Jerusalem and call it Me'ezhiva what's the point of raising money for those buildings I mean, basically just make a canopy and, 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 and put a, a, a sign on it he, and he never stopped dealing with people privately he, he, he would people who needed who wanted they were comforted by him by his smile and he didn't hesitate to use his illness and say I had it hard too and I somehow do it, you can do it, we'll do it together. He, whatever the person, he, he, the empathy that he projected was tremendous, and, and all day long that was happening. And everything grew, the yeshiva grew, his, his, his teaching, volume of teaching grew, his reach into people grew, his fundraising grew, and the illness progressed. Moved to the States fully with the family ten years ago, twelve years ago, and um, the the um, and I would come back, you know, once a year, twice a year, and then, so each time going in, it was difficult to watch. And um, to walk into the house, house was bedroom. There were people constantly coming, going, this one is taking entrance, it's empty yeshiva, this one is a a potential donor, this one is heartbroken, needs something, here's a boy who needs help, this, that, the other thing, on and on and on, and nothing. It was relentless. And disease kept taking its toll. He would would first be able to walk, and then he would stagger, and then he would have to be mostly in a wheelchair, getting harder to hear him speak but it kept going on and on and on and it wasn't always easy to see it as an outsider and so on um, and then at uh, the um, two, two two or three months ago Yidal HaShvon she um, had a regular day a full, one of his full days um, woke up in the morning said "Modani," stood up, collapsed passed away and he had one of the largest funerals Yeshayahu ever had, for over 100,000 people. And that was, I guess, his life. I'd like, I'd like to approach the stories about him, the study that he did, the assessment study. We, we've given a little bit of an example. His message to students was always that there is nothing in the world that makes you more spiritual. Or a happier fulfilled person than studying with intensity and with total immersion day in day out he reached and grabbed kids into it study more, say better he encouraged them and challenged them he, he said I'm living it and it's the thing that makes me most happy and it is something that will make you most happy and there was a message, and it was an atmosphere that, that sort of went into the smedesh You'd walk into the yeshiva, and still walk into the yeshiva, and, and you see thousands of people studying with an intensity and a fire that you never imagined. Um, I, I, I recall uh, an event, this happened after before, it was a yeshiva, but it was the same year. A large American Jewish organization, used to fund yeshivas in Israel. On one of the annual meetings, they decided that, you know, let's cut them out of the budget. They'll, they'll scream the least and, well, you know, and, you know kind of, uh, t- t- so they decided no more supporting, no more getting on yeshivas. Fine. There was one person on the board who was an Orthodox Jew and a, and, and a person who had, obviously, regard for yeshivas, and he said, Mr. Dr. Sansa, he had involved as a doctor, and I still remember, um, before you cut out such a large section of budget, why don't you go look on site? Take a visit. So okay, no problem. I'll be in Israel this this time. I'm doing this this. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll pencil in a morning for yeshivas. I, I remember vividly the scene. He drives up in a limo, which in Israel is almost uh, unheard of, to the to the yeshiva at 10:30 in the morning, typical weekday morning. He gets out and if I can find a dictionary word to describe this man's demeanor, condescending fits it perfectly. He had one of his smiles, yeah, yeah, you know, a little piece of business to take care of, they think they'll impress me, that's that. He walked into the bismedrish at 10.30 in the morning. Now, imagine the scene of at that time in the main Bishmedrish, there's been eight, 900 people packed in like this. Bishmedrish was very, very packed, terribly packed. Each one yelling at the top of his lungs, arguing, gesturing, and, and he came out ten minutes later, he was shaking. He, he little he man was shaking. He said, "I've never seen this amount of energy in my life." Um, and then there was a sequel to it also. He came down and they made like a little small uh, presentation, whatever. and he asked one of these people who you are? This person was a lawyer who had graduated happiness class in Yale, and was sitting and studying yeshiva. And that's said, what brings you here? And by the way, your name is Rosenblum? Your, your grandfather was one of the founders of reform in Chicago. Um, the name is Acklick. It's Yom San What are you doing here? What made you come here? He said, I'll tell you. One of my close friends, I remember the Ord Nechzan of was a Rhodes Scholar, who, was, who had, had had studied Semitic languages and was the best possibly in his class in Oxford and Semitic languages, he had come here and he was studying. He had six children in a two-room apartment and had taken in a Down syndrome trial to raise, so because the government would give you money, sort of a foster home, to be able to support himself. And this, Rosenblum concluded, he said, I didn't know what he was doing, but if it's worth that sacrifice, then, then that must be... If somebody's willing to sacrifice that much to do it, that must be something worth doing. And that's why I got into it. That was, the, that was the scene, that was the intensity that the Mishiva had and has. And he stoked those fires and flames tremendously. I want to step back two steps and share a personal observation and sense and feeling about, about the whole picture America advertises holds if you if you want the picture of a beautiful 65-year-old man and woman the picture of that beautiful couple are people who look like they're 35 you know as if you could mistake them for 35 except that they're living in Florida and not working anymore other than that that seems to be and we sort of and and that's sort of become our mindset that beauty is uh, something that's been unused something that has somebody who has nothing to do needs to do nothing and he's doing all the wonderful things. Life we're never sure what those are, but they just these are the wonderful things. He has nothing to do. Doesn't look like he's done very much. Leisure. That's the picture of it. It's as smart as walking into a lot, somebody person's personal library, and you say, "Wow, it's, this is a great scholar." Why? Well, he has all the classics and they are beautiful, and fresh as if they were minted yesterday. Ah, so this person is a very accomplished scholarly person. What about if you walk into a place and every book is worn through, and everything has been used, and you see how many times each page has been turned, and notes in the margins. Isn't that the beauty of a library? Isn't that the accomplishment of a person? Books are not made to be beautiful and unused. They're made to be used and to be worn out from use. The most precious thing that I inherited from my father's kind of bracha, 17 years ago, was a little tehillim that he used for I don't know how many years, and every page was almost transparent from use, except for pieces here and there we could make out an outline of the tear. That's a beautiful tehillim we're not putting this world to be steaks to roast on of Florida sun on both sides a little well done that's that's what we're here for that's, that's the beauty of a person that if the 60, 70, 80 years he looks like he's accomplished what a 15 year old has accomplished that's it that's not our picture of life It's not our picture of the world our picture of the world is we want to have used our life when we see well, when I was young and I began to become, I grew up religious orthodox, but as, as a young teenager I began to become more interested in the world of Torah as such. I began hanging up pictures of great Torah giants on the wall. And my cousins came to visit, non-religious. And in America you hang up two types of pictures, either women or people with big muscles, big bulging muscles, and that's that's what you admire, that's beautiful. And she looked at the pictures, and she said, ah, I don't get it. And I asked her, I said, Hannah, look at them, tell me what their face says. And she's a person sensitive. And she said, wisdom, understanding, godliness. I said, yeah, the face of somebody who has has brought out in himself where you can tell every time a smooth brow is beautiful, it means unused. It says on it, never opened. A brow that's furrowed, that's been a thousand and one times every day furrowed to try to figure out something deep, that's beautiful. Eyes that, that have shadows around them, because of the hours and the days and the nights spent worrying about someone else's problems, those are beautiful eyes If you ever see paintings of old Jewish mothers lighting licht that's beautiful the furrows in the brow, the worry for her children, the tears that she shed, that's beautiful A, 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 a face that says I've done nothing and expected to do nothing, says I'm worth nothing, a face that says I've spent Sweat and time and tears and prayers and thoughts for someone else. That's beautiful. My grandmother passed away suddenly. Like I said, he collapsed. It was, you know, 20 years, it was a miracle, and then it was sudden. And a half hour later, in Israel, in Jerusalem especially, they make funerals immediately, his oldest son had to eulogize. And the words he said were... My father had progressively become an angel. There was less and less body and more and more spirit until he was just about a mouth. And that's the most beautiful description that we can give to a human being. I want to conclude with a meddash. the Medish. The Medish says, there's a Possek in Kohelas. Tov Yoma Mothers Miyomi Volgo. The day of death. Is finer than the day of birth. So, Khazal said, Masha. There were people standing on a dock as they were christening a ship, and the ship was going off on its maiden voyage, and it was gleaming and beautiful, and you know, the deck and the bed and everything, and they were cheering and admiring. And somewhere on the side, an old vessel was completing her last voyage, lumbered in, holes, broken, but lumbered home for its final voyage. And everyone standing on the side and cheering, and the wise man said, you are foolish. That vessel, maybe it will never do anything useful, maybe it will never carry its cargo to its destination, maybe it will sink right away, maybe nothing come of it, this vessel, I've seen it, hundreds of voyages, of cargo, of people, surviving storms, and coming home, what a beautiful sight. I think the appreciation of someone who really used every moment of his life, who had worn through the crass shell of a body, so that people around him said he was almost an angel when he passed away, that's beautiful. It's not, before, before we do anything, the, before we make our first moves towards growing as people, as Torah people, we need to ask ourselves, what are the pictures, so to speak, that we hang on our walls? Because that's what we're going to aspire to. It's the model. what do I want to be? Do I want, it, 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 have I just blindly swallowed what the advertiser put in? that a life of nothing, looking forward to nothing, is great and beautiful. So I'm aspiring to f- stop doing anything productive as soon as possible, to spend the rest of a life doing nothing, and to die looking like a ship that had never sailed one, one uh, route, because, you know, that's, is that ideal? Is that, is that what a book is made for? A person is called Zeh Sefer us Adam. Um, Genesis is called this is the book of the beginning of the birth of man a man is a book and the beauty of a book lies you care for the pages but the pages are worn through with use with study with knowledge and with tears and we should think we should reflect a little bit what's the life and legacy we want for ourselves what's the life we want for ourselves and what's the legacy we want our children the picture of a craggy face, brow furrowed from thinking, eyes moist from caring, worrying, the smile of someone who reached a happiness, because the spirit is what provides happiness, not a momentary laugh or two. A body that had been used, where every cell of the body, every moment of time, had been put to use, had been productive. Had accomplished. That's the poster of ourselves that we want to put. And if we put that picture as our poster, and as our goal, God will hope that our lives will be full, fulfilled, accomplished. And when we lumber in on our final day, we'll have the same feeling people look at us and say, how many voyages, how much cargo, how many people How many storms weathered. What a beautiful ship come home.
1: Thank you, Robert Robiansky, for the words. I know that we, a group of us that were uh, last just about this time last year, uh, late January, we left on the 16th, yeah, so uh, just this time last year, we had um, an opportunity, we spent a week in Israel, in Jerusalem. we toured in the afternoons, and we learned Torah in the mornings, and... um, Every morning, a route from our hotel to the base of that we were learning in took us right past the Mir Yeshiva at uh, about 9.15 in the morning. And um, the scene, just to be part of that scene, buses are coming in from everywhere, from all around the whole metro area because... The yeshiva, again, Rav Svi had arranged that there should be bus service, particular bus service for the yeshiva, so busloads of young men, married men, who um, were coming in from all around the city, and these buses would be disgorging all of their uh, passengers, and they would all be heading towards the yeshivas and we would be walking right through all of that. And it was uh, it was a tremendous excitement because really the whole neighborhood it's like Torah town, and uh, we were part of that. I um, I realized that we were walking past the yeshiva every day, and um, I wanted the uh, I wanted everyone to have the opportunity to at least. Um, meet, if just only for a moment, um, the greatest personality in that neighborhood. So we made an arrangement, and uh, we brought the group past Rev Nelson's feet, and everyone uh, just really was. We went in and out of the apartment with hundreds of other people, and we just got a chance to go by and um, and uh, shake his hand and uh, greetings. Um, At that time, you know, I thought, oh, this is a wonderful thing, and we better be sure, every time we take a trip to Israel, we better be sure to do this. Uh, Of course you know that was uh, that was going to be the uh, only opportunity at least for that group and uh, it's something, it's a, it's a memory that uh, we treasure we took pictures of it, it's something that's really very uh, very important to us and we share a piece of that and I'm really uh, very very grateful that Rabbi Lopiansky was able to come and flesh out the picture because at the time I don't think that we even appreciated what we were doing and um and, and the uh the experience that we had and the memory that we treasure. So I just hope everyone will be able to share these words with others and uh share that idea. It um, I, I thought that this was important because I believe that Ravnussan Steve Finkel that's all uh embodied a life that uh, we could all put to use rather than uh, lauding him and extolling him for his greatness in Torah and his great piety. Rav Nassim Svi really lived a life that each and every one of us can actually uh, integrate into our own lives today. And I hope that we do that. So thank you all for coming. And Mir uh, Tz we will uh, continue to learn Torah and try to embody some of these messages. Thank you for listening to Torah Media Atlanta. Won't you consider making a donation to help support this important work? Just go to TorahMediaAtlanta.com and click on the Donate link. Thank you very much.